0: Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're returning to the same text we considered last week. We've been pouring what we might call a large and generous foundation of concrete for the key verse of our series on the church's shepherds, our home-based text, of course, 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Next week, we'll finally get to 1 Timothy 3, 2, and we'll get to that. But let's get our thinking started here as you find 1 Thessalonians 5. How do we think about the church? The church is not a support group. It's not an organization, so to speak. It's, and certainly not just a part of our lives as Christians. It's not just one segment of our lives. If our lives are, are divided like a pie, the church isn't just one piece. The true believer, rather, has a longing and a desire to be in vital relationship with the local church body that permeates all the pieces of the pie of your life. But if you've ever been in the position of searching for a church home, and all of you have at one time or another, there's so many factors to consider, including your own selfishness at times. What is the doctrine? Can I stand the preaching? That's a big one. That guy preaches for almost 20 minutes. What are we going to do? Are the people nice to me? The preaching might be okay, but the people are cold as fish. Will I want to be nice to them? Does the church seem organized or are they chaotic? Do they have lots of programs to make me happy? Are they preaching to honor God or to please men? Is the pastor relevant to my world? Is the music right for me, since it's all about me, after all? And on and on, and and you you wonder, which factors do I consider? And some have said that finding the right church home can be like finding a needle in a haystack. But I would submit to you there are basically three questions to ask of a local church. Question number one, do you have a high view of Scripture? Do you have a high view of Scripture as being inerrant, inspired, most importantly, and authoritative? there's no other authority. The scripture is inerrant. It's inspired. It's authoritative for all life and practice. A second question you could ask. Do you have a biblical view of salvation? Do you have a biblical view of salvation that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone? Meaning, man didn't choose God. God chose man. And a third question. Do you shepherd the sheep with qualified shepherds who do what shepherds are supposed to do? Do you shepherd the sheep with qualified shepherds who do what shepherds are supposed to do? In fact, if we were to boil down how a church is, uh, is supposed to function, a church that's pleasing to God, we could even boil this down further to one statement. What is the church? Qualified shepherds leading spiritually hungry sheep to proclaim and obey christ that 's it. qualified shepherds leading spiritually hungry sheep to proclaim and obey Christ. This has nothing to do with the size of the church, this has nothing to do with the resources of the church. This has nothing nothing to do with the bank account of the church or the sophistication of the church. It is shepherds teaching the Bible to people who want to obey Christ that is a church that pleases God. In recent years, a lot of good uh, publications have been put out about what do you do with a struggling church? The the church that's dwindled down to about 11 people and they're, they're, they're just struggling. The choice has always been to either do something snazzy to attract people or to just shut the doors of the church. That has always been kind of the two choices. Well, there's a better option. Make the 11 people a healthy church. Make them healthy and let God do what he wants to with that group. It's not really our decision to make. Better a church with 11 people with a couple of qualified elders who are shepherding the other nine than to attract people just for the sake of the institution. Qualified shepherds leading spiritually hungry sheep to proclaim and obey Christ. Now, this is an interesting passage we're looking at. 1 Thessalonians five, twelve, and 13. It's the same one we looked at last week. We looked at it to understand the duties of the members to the shepherds. Well, we're going to use exactly the same text as our starting point to examine the duties of the shepherds to the members. What are the elders? What are the shepherds, the leaders to do with you? What are our duties? Now, we've delineated some of the differences in eldership in the last couple of weeks. Some are subtle. Some are more obvious between the roles of the volunteer or lay elders and the vocational shepherds. The primary difference, of course, is that a few are called by God to fully devote their lives to the gospel ministry, most especially to dedicate themselves to the study of God's word, to prayer, to spiritual nurturing of the church, to be the feeders of the sheep. And we said that that particular role should be accompanied by extensive formal training and preparation. But today is a little bit more general in nature. What are the shepherd's duties to the members? What are all shepherds equally called to do, either personally or in the role to make sure that these things happen? Well, let's begin looking at this. 1 Thessalonians five twelve and 13. The Apostle Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So last time we looked at three duties of the members to the shepherds, we find three duties of the shepherds to the members. They they start general and they get more specific. So let's start very generally. The first duty of the shepherds, exert effort consistently. Exert effort consistently. This duty is mentioned twice in these two verses. Verse 12, those who labor among you. It literally means to toil. We get our word copious from this. It's diligent exertion. And then in verse 13, esteem them because of their work, literally deeds, things that they do. So what is this? Well, this is just a general statement that says that shepherding the local church is comprised of things you do. It is not comprised of decisions you make. The leadership of a local church is not a board of directors of a corporation that meets periodically to tell all the employees what to do. That's not what leadership or eldership is about. The leadership of the local church is leading the way in copious exertion in the task of ministry. There should be a sense of sweat, of oomph, of momentum, of being all in. The basic task is defined in 1 Peter 5, 2, that the elders among you are to, quote, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd is a, is a verb. In this case, it's a word that means to lead, to guide. But probably the most major implication of shepherding is to provide for. There's a provision. There's a giving of feeding. And we love this word because in one single word, you get the ideas of, of tending the sheep, of watching out for the sheep, of guarding the sheep, of providing for the sheep. All wrapped up in that one beautiful thought. And who are we to shepherd? The flock of God among you. Now, while we love and have been blessed over the years by the radio ministries and podcast ministries of pastors and Bible teachers, that is not a substitute for your pastor. That is not a substitute for the shepherding and accountability of being in vital relationship with a body of believers to be among one another. You cannot say, as I used to hear when I was on staff at the Master Seminary, I would get calls from people saying, John MacArthur is my pastor. And I would say, well, where do you live? And they would say, North Dakota. Then John MacArthur is not your pastor unless you're driving on Friday night to make it to California for church. There's no place in the Church of Jesus Christ for shepherds who are aloof. There's no place in the Church of Jesus Christ for shepherds who are not around There's no place in the church of Jesus Christ for shepherds who are not meaningfully connected to the body. That doesn't mean, obviously, that every shepherd can be available to every person all the time. You you guys, uh, this church is growing so fast, I literally have a cheat sheet where I'm trying to figure out all of your kids' names right now and looking at pictures. If your picture isn't in GraceNet, then you're out of luck because I'm not going to know who you are because that's how I'm doing this. So that's, that's on God, but that doesn't mean... That shepherds should just be so aloof that we don't know anybody. That's wrong. There is no place for aloofness. Every shepherd should be available to some of you much of the time. Does that make sense? You as members of the church should always have a shepherd available to you at one level or another. Never should it be where you said, I I, I needed to talk to, to a shepherd in the church and I couldn't get a hold of anybody for a month. Never, never, never. If that ever happens, I want to know about it. And if it's me, I really want to know about it. And so the shepherds are to exert effort consistently. This is the flavor of of kapiao and ergon, labor and work. Kapiao, to be copious. Ergon, we get the word ergonomic. It's designed for what? For work. There's sweat, there's labor, and there's consistent. Sweat and labor. The church that Sylvia and I attended as a young married couple, we really cut our teeth spiritually there. There are still elders and leaders there that were in leadership when we were there in our early 20s. They have been so faithful, so consistent, an amazing track record of consistent labor for the body of Christ. And while it's certainly no shame for an elder to choose to step down for good and legitimate reasons, the idea of aspiring to the office of overseer, First Timothy 3.1, this is not looking to serve what churches, some churches call a term of office. There, there's no definition for that. There's no paradigm for that in Scripture. You serve until you can't serve anymore. The desire should be to serve and to serve and to serve. There should be a sense that the time goes by so quickly and you blink and you've been serving for 10 years, you blink again, it's been 20 And how are they to do this? How are we to do this? Jesus said in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 27, that whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And he gives himself as the example, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can I put it this way? There is only one royal person in the church of Jesus Christ, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one king. There's no royalty in the church. There's just servants. The CEO in the workplace is a servant in the church. The PhD in the marketplace is a servant in the church. The most powerful in the world is a servant in the church. We could make the case that Philemon's former slave, Onesimus, came back to the church at Colossae and may have eventually become a pastor over his own master. Why? Because in the church, all those distinctions are erased. There's no royalty in the church. There's just servants. So the first duty to shepherding the local church is exert effort consistently. Can I tell you this? You have a right to go to any of your elders and to ask this question. What do you do? What do you do? If the answer is, I go to meetings and make decisions on your behalf, that's not eldering. You have that right. And I would hope and pray that the answer would be good and they could show you a list. That's what I'm always uh, looking for. First duty, exert effort consistently. There's a second duty, exercise authority protectively. Exercise authority protectively. And we're going to spend some time on this one. Paul makes the point of spiritual authority in verse 12. Those who are over you in the Lord. Now, I think we have to start here. What does this spiritual authority not consist of? What, what is it not? There's a couple of things to, to take a side note here. It's not a mediation authority. It's not a mediation authority. What do I mean by that? Elders are not your priestly representatives before God, except that we pray for you. But it's not that uh, we, we stand between you and God. We don't do that. That's the sole privilege of our one mediator, Jesus Christ. I, I always have to smile at this because I think it's especially important for our new brothers and sisters coming out of Catholicism to understand this, that you don't have a priest anymore. You have a great high priest who is the Savior and whoever lives to make intercession for you. It's not that somehow the elders of the church have the Lord's attention more than you do, that getting in good with the pastor means getting in good with God. You know, I, I have some prayers I need answered, so I'm going to take the pastor out to lunch. You can take me out to lunch, but I don't know what's going to happen with your prayers. That's between you and the Lord. I have literally had somebody tell me, Pastor, bless my car. I'm only getting 10 miles to the gallon. Buy a new car. Or worse, Pastor, please pray for God to forgive me. No, you go to the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a mediation authority. I'm happy to pray for your car, but I'd rather pray that you make enough money to buy a better one. Second, what well, a spiritual authority is not, it's not a domineering authority. It's not a domineering authority. Elders don't have the authority to make personal decisions for you. We don't have a, the authority to set up a false standard of righteousness that isn't directly addressed in Scripture. We exhort you to righteousness. We exhort you to wisdom but ultimately, we can't make personal judgment call decisions for you, nor should we. The churches that, that delve into that realm become very cultish. And they become very pigeonholed into one sort of uh, pastor-driven culture that's not really biblical. I've never called any of you and said, it's time to switch to eating organic vegetables only. I will be watching you. There's, there's nothing that says I can do that. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, 4, as As Peter exhorts the elders of the church, he cautions them that they're not to domineer over those in their charge. It literally means don't stand over them as if you are their Lord. Not a domineering authority. So then what is this spiritual authority? Let me say up front, just to be clear, my goal in this message is not so much to convince you to follow. We talked about that more last week but really to remind our current leadership and to exhort you as future leaders to the responsibility to exercise authority protectively. Because if the elders don't protect the church, who's going to? They're the last line of defense. So what is this authority? Well, we have to start off by just mentioning that this is derived authority. The authority is derived from the Lord Jesus himself, and it's simply authority to tell you to obey him. That's all the authority I have, to open the Word of God and say, do it. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who is the real authority? Jesus Christ alone, the head of the church. And now he gives derived authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the derived authority. I do not have the right under God's uh, will to tell you, you must do what Steve Swartz says. I do have the right to tell you, you must do what Jesus Christ says. So the derived authority is that shepherds have authority given by Christ himself to exhort you to obey the word of God. And a verse we're reading almost every week, Hebrews 13, 17, uh, bears this out, that you are to, quote, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me put it to you this way. God never gives responsibility without authority. If your leaders are responsible... If I'm going to give an account before God for the souls entrusted to us here at Grace, then the leaders ought to have the authority to teach and insist on godliness in those for whom they're responsible. But let's break this down. I want to give you three spheres of authority that the elders are to exercise in the church. Three spheres of authority. The first sphere we'll just call general oversight. General oversight. First Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. It's just a word that means to inspect, to care for, to minister to. It isn't authority that domineers the sheep. It's not authority that diminishes uh, the sheep. It's just an oversight that provides spiritual direction and, and the guardrails, so to speak, of your life in Christ. Very similarly, 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of the elders who rule well who rule well. Some have tried to to soften that, but it's actually the same Greek word used here in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, those who are over you. It's the same thing. There's an authority. The shepherds are charged with guiding the affairs of the church. This may include individual shepherding of your lives toward Christ's likeness and obedience to the church, to, to the scriptures rather. This also Involves decisions regarding broad church-wide directions. At times, the elders will bring to your consideration thoughts that we're having for big, broad things that we're thinking about to keep you informed and even to gauge your response at times. We've always said that the church actually votes in two ways. You vote with your checkbook and you vote with your feet, right? If you don't give to something and if you're not here, then we would take that as a no. But we never take a vote and cause division in the church. Whether you call a church that voted for something 80% to 20%, that's a split body. All of you as members who have agreed to our membership covenant have already voted. What did you vote? That the elders will make these decisions ultimately. That keeps us unified. So there's a general oversight. There's a second sphere of authority. We'll call this doctrinal guardianship. Doctrinal guardianship. And I want to have you turn just a few pages to your right over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter one, Paul wrote to Titus as his emissary representing Paul at the churches on the island of Crete. And in chapter one, he gives a very similar list to the qualifications of an elder that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3. But the climactic final qualification, the, 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 the peak qualification, First Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus 1 verse 9. This is the, the peak qualification of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, Paul's going to get in, in more detail in chapter 2 on the give instruction in sound doctrine part. We'll come to that in a moment. But for this moment, consider the jaw-dropping nature of this phrase. Rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine that's almost unheard of in American evangelicalism that's not something we do someone in the church wants to start a new ministry or teach a new program that includes the latest buzz the the latest new book that's so popular the latest movement that seems to be taking the country by storm generally speaking if every other church in town is doing it I automatically say "Nope, not going to do that because something's wrong But in that situation, very often, and I think most often, the church leadership immediately gets concerned about whose feelings are going to be hurt if we don't go along with this. Can I ask you a question? How about God's feelings? How about God's glory? How about considering what he thinks? How's God going to feel about leaders being more concerned about what people think than about what God thinks? The faithful shepherd is to rebuke contradictory theology that contradicts the sound doctrine we derive from Scripture. That is a clear part of our job. Now, people who tend to bring contradictory theology, do they usually do this in a friendly conversation? Eh, Sometimes. Maybe there's an ignorance that needs gentle correction. My experience in a couple of decades of pastoral ministry, though, has been that someone who's determined to begin sharing their views that contradict sound doctrine almost always think they're people they're doing people a favor by correcting the church leadership now we have a problem paul is clear on what needs to be done look at verse 11 they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach Verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply, literally, severely. And what's the reason that they may be sound in the faith? There's not in these situations a sense in which the elders are to say, hey, let's have a long conversation and and explore these views and talk about maybe how we can come to a compromise. No, there there is a, you're going to stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to stop you. Period. That's how you protect unity. The, The church at Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, they incurred the sharp rebuke of the Lord Jesus himself because while they didn't deny the true faith in Christ, they were adding to the faith by being overly indulgent of deviant teachings. Then in other words, they had a small core that they would say, well, this is the gospel, but you know, we can expand that. We can add this part. We can add this addendum, this add-on. As long as it doesn't completely contradict the gospel, we're okay with that. What did Jesus tell them? He said, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, Jesus said to the elders of the church, either you take care of it or I will. Turn the page to Titus chapter 2. And now Paul gives some specific instructions in Titus chapter 2 as to what shepherds are to communicate, how they're to communicate it. Chapter 2, verse 1, Titus is to teach theology. Theology. But as for you, teach with accords with sound doctrine. And then you see the applications of sound theology to the men, to the women, and as we interact with the world in verses two through 10. Verses 11 and 12, in fact, tell us that the gospel of grace should change everything about your life. We're to communicate that, that you renounce ungodliness, you renounce unworldly passions, you're living self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That's what we're shepherding you towards. And what's your motivation? Verse 13, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works, to do what's right. So Paul has told Titus to teach sound doctrine and the right response to sound doctrine and how is... Titus, to do this. Four imperatives. Verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Declare. It means speak them. Don't ask questions like, do you think we should do what's right over here? Or perhaps should we consider doing what's right over here? No, declare them. This is what's right exhort this is a word that means to implore to urge to push to plead even you're to rebuke what does that mean it means to expose sin the the shepherds that won't talk about sin are not shepherding and then the fourth bullet point kind of imperative here let no one disregard you meaning don't let anyone invalidate your god-given right to do this in other words the elder is to exert that How? With all authority. It's the idea of insisting that you obey the word of God if you claim to be in Christ. It's a very simple two-step process. Do you claim to be in Christ? Yes. Then why are you not obeying the word? Here, it's very clear. Oh, wait a minute. Let me back up. You don't want to do this. Are you saying you don't want to do this? Then I'm going to go back to question number one. Why do you claim to be in Christ? Because if you don't want to obey, you you can make no claim on Christ. That's what elders are to do. Turn back with me to the first Thessalonians 5. I mentioned Hebrews 13, 17 speaks of the elders. Keeping watch over your souls. How is that accomplished? It's mainly accomplished by guarding doctrine. By guarding doctrine. This is exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 4 is really one of the outcomes of, of proper shepherding. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. You're familiar with this. I'll just read it quickly. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that's sound doctrine, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to this. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of what? Doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Can I put it this way? We don't place people's feelings above the truth. That is the beginning of the end for the church. Truth is everything. And anyone who wants to diminish the truth, anyone who wants to play with the truth because something has sentimental value to you, in the church then they're subject to the authority of the elders we we do the best we can i mean even in our bookstore our small groups our men's and women's uh, ministry studies we endeavor to the best of our ability to vet and to test every material every book every outline every everything that we use so that we're consistent with our own doctrinal statement and we're not going to cause confusion One of the worst things that can happen in the church is to find out that there's a small group using a book that's a horrible resource and now you have to go and say, I'm sorry, you have to stop using that because what happens? People's feelings get hurt and now the elders have to decide, do feelings or truth win? Truth must win. This authority is not for the benefit of the shepherds at all. It's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. The last part of Hebrews 13, 17 says that for those who decide to be rebellious and difficult and disobedient, it says, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is the that? In the context of that verse, shepherds who are groaning over you instead of being joyful because of you. But here's the joy of a shepherd. I'll bet you can finish this verse. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in what? The truth. That's the greatest joy, walking in the truth. And could I just say this? Woe to the shepherd who will not guard his people. Woe to the shepherd who will not guard his people and double woe and warning to the one who welcomes and invites heretical teaching to partner with and come alongside his people, especially when he knows better. God will call him to account for wanting to please people and wanting to build a dynasty of more people instead of protecting the ones he already has. Our goal at Grace Bible Church is not to grow the church in breadth. That's God's business. Our goal is to grow you in depth and to protect the sheep who are here. Because if you won't protect the sheep as an elder, as a pastor, now the goal becomes, I want to see results instead of trying to please the Lord by staying true to the truth Of the biblical gospel. And now that leader has become more concerned. With pleasing people than with honoring God. That is not a place I ever want to be. I do not preach to please you. I preach to sanctify you. And sometimes those are not the same thing are they? One more sphere of authority. The third sphere. Moral guardianship. Moral guardianship. The church as a whole. Ought to be on a composite journey. Of ever increasing sanctification. Of growing in Christ-likeness. That's our goal. Him we proclaim, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For many of you, that journey of ever-increasing sanctification has been a a process of many years, and your fruitful and effective and obedient lives are living proof of your progress in the Lord. For others of you, though, this is a more recent development, as you've come to understand that faith is in Christ and involvement in the local church is not just about being a consumer of a product, but about joining with the body of believers who are all striving to be like Christ, then that's newer for you. And you're looking at your life going, I got a lot of things to clean up. We understand that. But this is what we ought to be doing. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, here it is, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's our goal as a church, to become compositely more and more and more like Christ. The moral guardianship of the church is certainly not looking for perfectionism. We're not demanding perfectionism. We understand the the concept of progressive sanctification. The process of growing in the Lord is never complete. And even many struggles with sin, we may take all the way to our grave. And we'll be relieved to see Christ as he is and we will become like him. We're to walk alongside you though, we're to walk together, we're to encourage you, you're to encourage one another. So where does the moral guardianship of the church step in? Where the guardianship comes in concerns unrepentant, recalcitrant sin patterns that can and will taint the whole body. There comes a point where the elder's main concern for a member is not for that member, but for what that member is going to do to the rest of the church. In his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Dr. Mark Dever lists church discipline as mark number seven of a healthy church, and he gives five reasons that a church should practice church discipline. First of all, for the good of the person disciplined. Disciplined. For the good of the person disciplined. It's to drive them to repentance. This is not a a vengeful, vindictive act. It's discipline for their hopeful good. And you might say, I never want to be in the crosshairs of another believer in church discipline. I got news for you. We've all been in the crosshairs of one another. If you're married, you've done Matthew chapter 18, step one, a thousand times. Honey, I I think I'm seeing a sin pattern in your life you might want to consider. That's church discipline. It's good. We need that. We, We need to help one another. There's a second reason that a healthy church should practice church discipline for the good of other Christians so that they see the danger of sin. The good of other Christians is they see the danger of sin. When there's serious, unrepentant sin that's observable, others need to see the serious nature of rebellion. It's a gracious warning of what real judgment will look like. We have had to take people since I've been at Grace to the fourth step of church discipline Just a few times in the number of years I've been here. And every single time, that has been one of the most cleansing, eye-opening, humbling times for our whole church. Because I've seen all of you with wide eyes going, oh, sin is a big deal. Which brings us to our third reason for the health of the church as a whole. For the health of the church as a whole. Sometimes it's like medicine. It needs to be taken occasionally to get the body back to health so it can function properly. There's a fourth reason, that is for the corporate witness of the church. I tell you what, the seeker-sensitive movement that began in the 80s, early 80s, through the 90s, and now has become like normal church in American evangelicalism. Basically, the whole point of that movement was to say we should make the church as much like the world as possible. What does that do to your witness? It eradicates it. It makes you worthless as a witness for the gospel. Instead, the church should be seen as radically different. Somebody comes in here and says, these people are way different than all of my neighbors. They're completely different. But when the churches are seen as no different than the world, then the witness of a life-changing gospel is now destroyed. Now the best you can say is, Jesus wants to be your friend just like he's my friend. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus needs to take your wretched, sinful life and turn it on its ear and forgive you and sanctify you and make you like himself. But if a church is filled with people that don't reflect that, then where's our witness? The most important reason that Dever gives is we practice church discipline for the glory of God as we reflect his holiness. We practice church discipline for the glory of God as we reflect his holiness. The church in Thyatira which tolerated immorality, Jesus issued a strong rebuke, including that he would be striking dead those who would not repent. In other words, elders, if you don't do it, I will. The Reformed Belgic Confession of 1561 says this, quote, the marks by which the true church is known are these. There's three of them. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, which means you have elders that are doing what they're supposed to do, they're taking the Lord's table, we're baptizing new believers, and if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, that's how you know the true church. You ask a church leader in any church, do you guys practice church discipline? If they say no, according to this confession, they're not a church. They're not a church. By my count, there are at least 14, not minor, but 14 major passages in the New Testament that deal with the discipline of the one who would stubbornly continue in an unrepentant, obstinate direction. I've preached the whole message on those 14 passages in the message called the purity of the church. I'm sure you can find that online if you want to. But that is the job. That is the duty. The church needs to be a place not where you come to try to act perfect. You come in all of your imperfection, all of the horror of your sin to be around people who are being sanctified with Christ at the same time as you and who can lock arms with you and say, let's do this together. But the one who says, I don't want to lock arms. I want to fake it. And I want to continue in an adulterous relationship. I want to continue treating my wife like she's a doormat. And I'm not going to have anybody tell me otherwise. I want to continue abusing my children. I want to continue my gambling habit. I want to continue doing drugs. I want to continue doing this this, and that. And and I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to work through it. I'm not going to ask the Lord to help me. I'm not going to ask the body to help me. What does the Bible say to do to you? Either change or go. But what happens with church leaders who don't have the courage to do that? Well, we don't want to hurt his feelings. That's where the courage comes in. The elders of the local church are to exercise authority protectively, general oversight, doctrinal guardianship, moral guardianship whether the duties of shepherds exert effort consistently exercise authority protectively let's do one more examine his life regularly examine his life regularly actually i'm going to do two more examine his life regularly first Thessalonians 5:13 says to esteem the leaders of the church it means to regard them highly to consider them worthy of honor and yes we've said it's because of their work That's what the text says here. Esteem them very highly and love because of their work. But there needs to be a a bigger reason than just their work. Consider so-called shepherds who may be great preachers. They may be tremendous motivators, gifted leaders. But if they don't live a life that you want to imitate, now there's a problem, isn't there? Shepherds are not immune from regularly examining their own lives, nor should they be. Paul openly put himself out there as a model to be imitated. Philippians three seventeen and eighteen, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Isn't that a marvelous system? Find a believer who's walking with the Lord and imitate his life, and that helps you in your sanctification. Peter, in his glorious call to faithful shepherding, wrote in First Peter five three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let me give you some ways that your elders are to be examples to you. They should be an example in their love for the church. In their love for the church. Not just a love for being in charge in the church, but a genuine love for the body. A love that's contagious. A love that's that's catching. There's no place in the church for a shepherd without a genuine love for the individuals in the church. A love that's demonstrated, that's shown in eldership. I really believe this with all of my heart. An eldership that truly loves the church will see God form, into the, form the church into that which loves one another. That it starts at the top. Love for the church. Another way to be an example is love for the preached word. Love for the preached word, not just for others, but for themselves. The shepherd or elder that I am absolutely certain is on his way to becoming the problem in the church is the one who stopped being soft and pliable and sensitive to the spirit when he hears the preached word. There becomes the attitude, this is for everybody else. I I do lectures every year at the Grace Advance Academy to church planters. And one of the things I warn them about is your core group that begins a brand new church work can sometimes see themselves as different than the rest of the church. They need to have established up front, yeah, you're the core group and I'm your shepherd. And you need to hear the preached word. I'll put it this way. This is a challenge to our men. The elders of the local church should be setting the example of being the most attentive and the most focused on their own personal growth, the most willing to examine their lives regularly. I think that's fair, don't you? How about this example? Submission to the authority of the Word. Submission to the authority of the Word. One major way to be an example is to model Scripture being authority of all of life. It is so tempting for an elder to use life experience as the authority that you go to an elder and say, you know, I'm having trouble managing my money. And you're tempted to say, well, let me show you how I do it. How about this? How about start with, well, what does the Bible say about this? Life experience works as an illustration that biblical principles are effective, but your elders need to model basing their life and practice on a sound understanding of what scripture says on a topic. You ought to be able to go to your elders and say, what does scripture say about how to treat my wife, how to treat my husband, how to raise my children? And they should be able to give you a relatively full orbed understanding, submission to the authority of the word. How about this example, love for his wife? Love for his wife. I can't emphasize enough how impactful and important a leader's love for his wife is to his, his witness and to his example. A marriage that's prioritized and vital and filled with love and joy, that's a bedrock of security that helps the rest of the church have hope that maybe their marriages can be that way as well. I heard a preacher once begin a sermon by saying, "Well, my wife and I got in a fight on the way here, and hopefully things will work out. Turn to First Peter chapter five. <laughs> Nobody was focused on First Peter chapter five, because mom and dad were unstable," is how it felt. How about this example, leadership in the home? An elder who is led by his wife, either by her pressure or her demands, cannot be an elder. He just can't. If that's the case, then agendas and directions in the church are potentially going to be set by his wife pushing for something that is a terrible example i have seen this happen so many times i've worked with guys and talked to elderships where there's a a meeting and a direction for something big and important is set and then somebody calls and says we need to have a new meeting and he's totally changed his mind no he didn't his wife changed his mind leadership in the home how about this example a family devoted to godliness a family devoted to godliness listen very carefully It is possible to love your family, to be loyal to your family, and yet not be devoted to their godliness. Because sometimes your love for your family, your loyalty to your family, needs to include causing conflict. Because godliness is not a priority for somebody. Who should initiate conflict in the home? It should be the husband and father initiating here's something in our family that is not reflective of a godly family I'm going to initiate conflict to change that thing what does it mean to have this idea of being completely devoted to godliness it means that an elder is vitally concerned that his family follow Christ and pursue godliness that's his main concern loyalty to your family above and beyond godliness is treacherous that's wrong it's idolatrous. And yes for the leader with children yet to come to faith with the with the little ones that leader can model his open desire for his kids salvation he can proclaim the gospel to his home he can like every other parent put his children in gospel proclaiming situations in the church. I'll give you one more way to be an example but really you could think of many more I'm sure. Excellence in the workplace. Excellence in the workplace for both volunteer and vocational elders. A hardy and robust work ethic is a tremendous example, especially to the men in the church. An elder who's mediocre at his job, why would you expect him to be great as an elder? I, I want elders who do their jobs with excellence because they'll do that in the church as well. A paid pastor who seems to not really be showing much fruit, not striving for excellence, not putting in some sweat and some time to do things more and do things better, why would we expect him to be a great example? These are just some of the areas where an example can be set. But you should be able to ask your elders, how do you do such and such in life? And receive an answer that's thoughtful, scriptural, detailed, something that you could say, I want to do that. I want to do that. Now, of course, your leaders can't be held to a standard of perfection. But one example they can set is how to deal with their own weaknesses, right? How to deal with their own frailties. I can't emphasize how important this idea of example is. This is why we're, we're putting great stress on this today. How important is it? When we look at the qualifications of an elder, finally, beginning next week, listen carefully. What you're going to see is that every single qualification, with the possible exception of the able-to-teach skill qualification, but every other qualification is a character quality to be imitated and emulated, every one of them. In other words, basically the entirety of the qualifications to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ consists of the question, what kind of example are you? That's the qualification. Well, the duties of shepherds exert effort consistently, exercise authority protectively, examine his life regularly. One more, exhort the church scripturally. And I really mean it one more this time. Exhort the church scripturally. We've already touched on this this morning and directly in some other messages, but the exhortation in the church, it can't be overemphasized because once you've lost that, you've lost the will to be a true leader in the church. Leadership and exhortation go together the heart of shepherding is instruction. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. It's a word that means to instruct you, to warn you, to advise you. It's the same word used in Colossians 1.28, our theme verse. Him we proclaim warning everyone. What is instruction? Well, it basically has two elements. Teach what is right from Scripture and warn against what is wrong from Scripture. Those are the two elements. Teach what's right, warn against what's wrong. And of course, the heart of the heart of the heart of shepherding is found in Paul's command. To Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There's to be a fixation, a preoccupation, a passion to instruct from God's word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 that his passion was to preach Christ and him crucified. To proclaim that Jesus came to live a perfect life and die the death of a criminal that you and I deserved. Why is this? Well, it's because Paul grieved over the lost. He wanted them deeply to come to saving faith in Christ, to turn away from their sin and turn instead to Christ. And then he was passionate about instructing these new believers in living a life of faith. He was passionate about it. And that's why men who occupy pulpits as motivational speakers and feel-good artists are not shepherds, because they're not instructing. They're not giving you information from the word. The heart of shepherding is instruction from the scripture. I find it interesting that um, in our culture today, there's a there's a natural cultural expectation that your pastor is also a professional counselor as well. But you know what the Puritans thought of as counseling? You know what the counseling office was? Right here. They said, you counsel from the pulpit. You counsel with the word of God. That as the word of God is taught and applied, the Puritan pastor would say, you have two choices. You may be a hearer of the word only and now preaching is a spectator sport that does you no good. Or your other choice, you may be a hearer and doer of the word Treating instruction as a weekly life-changing event to be a central part of your life. You know what would happen in the families of Puritan churches? All the fathers would take their families home and over lunch, they would say, let us now apply and think about how to make this sermon live in our lives this week. Every family. Not a bad idea, dads and husbands. Part of the role of the shepherds at Grace Bible Church is to push you toward organizing your life around the instruction, organizing your life around the exhortation, organizing your life around the preaching of the word of God, to take every opportunity to hear the healing salve and the teaching instructor of the scriptures. And the elders here are deeply committed to this, and I'm thankful for that. And when I first came to Grace Bible Church, just about the first thing I asked for was to form this weird, odd thing that almost no churches do anymore, and that is a Sunday evening service. People have said, isn't that like 1930s? Like, no, that's 2,000 years of church history. Why is this? Well, it's very simple. You go to a church where you get one 20-minute sermon, 15 minutes of which consists of stories and a few Bible verses. That does your soul no good. But if you double your intake of the word of God, it has a profound and immeasurable impact on your soul, on your walk with Christ. By the way, it has the added benefit of keeping you from turning Sunday into another three-fourths of a Saturday. It's not. It's the Lord's day. Not the Lord's part of a day. How did the uh, old-time reformers help their people? Well, since the days of the apostles there 's been a very strong tradition in the Church of shepherding by writing letters for you younger people, that consists of a, a pen and a piece of paper, and you you write on it. The French reformer John Calvin is very famous for helping define on paper reformed theology. He's famous for his massive work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. But what's lesser known about him is that he wrote about 1,300 letters to his church members. And we're talking about the kind where you have to dip your quill into the ink and so forth. And these were not little notes. Hope you're doing well. Congrats on the new baby. These were long epistles to answer deep theological questions. He was staunch and robust on sound doctrine, but his letters were warm and loving. On May 28th, 1544, Calvin wrote a letter answering a group of pastors who had begun to question the deity of Christ. They had viciously attacked Calvin for his biblical stance on Christ's deity. He very ably defended the deity of Christ in this letter. But here's his closing comment. He says, Adieu, my very dear brethren in the Lord. May the Lord increase you more and more both in wisdom and in strength that you may go forward in the upbuilding of his church as you had begun. Amen, your own John Calvin. In our culture, we do that with email. One of my favorite things to do is to get a theological question via email from you because I can actually sit and really think it through and answer it for you. Peter had a unique perspective when he said, shepherd the flock of of God among you, 1 Peter 5, where do you think that came from? After the resurrection of Christ, Jesus restored Peter, who had denied Christ three times. And in his restoration conversation, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And three times Jesus said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So what does it mean to feed the sheep? What sort of effort is this talking about? Apostle Paul helps us. Ephesians 4, 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip means to make adequate, to prepare you. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the flavor of duplicating and multiplying your ministry This takes effort. It takes determination. And when shepherds put forth that effort, and when you will put forth the effort to be a part of that, this toil, this work, what does the result look like? Here's the result. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, that's personal sanctification, filled with all knowledge, that's the knowledge of God, and here's the result, and able to instruct one another. Same word as admonish in First Thessalonians 5.12. That's a church that's responding to shepherding, that's being equipped, you're instructing each other. The labor, the exertion of the shepherds is not to do all the shepherding, but to equip you to live your lives together as a local body to care for one another as well. There's a top priority for the shepherds, especially the ones charged with regularly bringing God's word to bear in your lives. Acts 6, the apostles appointed men to take care of daily care, issues in the exploding Jerusalem church so that verse 4 says we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word that has to be the priority Pastor Richard Wormbrand, the author of Tortured for Christ he wrote of his time many decades ago in a communist prison and his passion to preach he wrote this it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. John Wesley wrote, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote of his ministry, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. You should have elders who will proclaim the word of God to you as if it's the last opportunity they have to do it and you should listen to the word of God as if it's your last opportunity to hear it. You should demand nothing less from your shepherds. A few years ago, for a while, I had a sign on my study door that said this, Unless the building is on fire or you want to get saved or you owe me money, please do not disturb at this time. Because the best thing I can do for you is to spend my time meeting with God so I can come tell you what he says. Right after Jesus heard of the execution of John the Baptist and right after he had sent the disciples out to minister two by two, he went with the 12 to go away to a desolate place. Jesus was grieving his friend, his cousin, John the Baptist, and and the twelve needed to take a break. So they got in a boat and they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. But when they landed, so much for a day off, Mark 6.34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do in response to the fact that they were like sheep without a shepherd? And he began to teach them many things. That's what the sheep need. That's what you ought to expect from your shepherds. What's their duty toward you? Exert effort consistently, exercise authority protectively, examine his life regularly, and exhort the church scripturally. That's a church that's on the rails where it ought to be. Our Father, we thank you for your clear word. Lord, our our little church meets in this little building back here hidden away and yet we're asking you Lord to do eternal great infinite mighty things through this little body and that starts Lord with the faithfulness of your servants of your shepherds it is a daunting task Lord we're to set an example yet we are sinners we're to teach the word and yet we don't know it as well as we ought and so Lord bless our efforts I pray I pray for this body of believers, Lord, that they would follow the word of God, that they would love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that they would obey him in everything with total loyalty and total devotion. And I pray for our shepherds, and I pray for our future shepherds, Lord, and I pray for those in leadership at other levels, that we would have such love, such joy in teaching and, and guiding and shepherding the flock of God, that the whole church could come together together And rejoice, Lord, that the church is working as it ought for the biggest and the best reason of all that the Lord Jesus Christ might be pleased with his bride, which is us, his church. And it's in Christ's name we pray and thank you. Amen.